0: Hi there, Katie here with a very special announcement and invitation. I've recently had a number of listeners reach out and suggest that we have a place to continue the conversation off air. So I've created a LinkedIn group called Getting in the Loop Podcast, and I would like to invite you to join. The aim of the group is to allow you to connect with other Getting in the Loop Podcast listeners and discuss the episodes as well as share other Circular Economy related news and views I'm really excited for this group because I sometimes find it challenging to share everything that I find out about Circular Economy on the podcast alone. So I personally plan to use the group to share more information, especially events that I think might be relevant for you listeners. I've put the link to the LinkedIn group in the show notes, and you can also find it by going to the website, of course, LinkedIn, and searching Getting in the Loop podcast. Hi, I'm Katie Wellen, and join me each week as I talk with experts around the globe about circular economy. You'll find out what's being done to make it a reality, and if it can really solve the problems it promises. It's time for Getting in the Loop. Welcome to Episode 55 of the Getting in the Loop podcast. Donald Eubank joins us on the podcast today. Donald is the co-author of the new book, Leading Sustainably, The Path to Sustainable Business, and how the SDGs changed everything. Donald and I had a great chat, and in this episode, we talk about the Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs, and how companies are using them to guide sustainable business practices. Developed by the United Nations, the SDGs are 17 goals that provide a blueprint for us to achieve a better future for all. And in today's episode, I challenge Donald about their usefulness as guides for helping us achieve climate goals. Today on the podcast, Donald shares tangible examples from global companies that are using the SDGs as frameworks to implement sustainable business strategies in their organizations. It's a great talk, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome, Donald, to the Getting in the Loop podcast.
1: Thank you. Good to be here, Katie.
0: I'm very excited to to chat with you today. And before we get started, can you tell me where you're calling from?
1: Yes, I'm calling from Shizuoka Prefecture, just south of Tokyo, by a couple hours, uh, escaping the heat and the mask life in the city for a couple days.
0: Excellent. I went to Tokyo and Kyoto when I was quite young so i'm sure it has changed a lot since uh, since then and i'm sure it has also changed a lot in the last year just from the covid situation
1: well actually in the past uh, i'd say 5 to 10 years the amount of tourist traffic coming through has become overwhelming so that actually the locals in kyoto in particular were complaining about so many tourists coming through right? it's actually this is a sustainability issue and people talk about this here but now of course you go there and you have the streets to yourselves and it's a completely different thing.
0: Yes, I have also experienced that a bit in, in Sweden, in Stockholm here this summer. I was crazy with going to places where you would know this would be very full during the height of travel season and, you know, no one there except for locals. So, but uh, yeah. So you're the co-founder and principal of Read the Air. Could you explain what Read the Air is?
1: Sure. I may. I might as well tell a little bit about Trista and myself. Um, we met, I would say, in 2017. And it was a, a meet-cute. Uh, her son and my daughter were in the same drama class. And so we met each other in the park while we were waiting for them to get out, uh, with my younger daughter as well, actually. And we ended up just having a series of conversations over, I'd say, about four months or so, every Saturday in the park, uh, either waiting for them or after we'd picked them up with everyone else. And we're both... Uh, we enjoy a good conversations. So, we were talking about uh, politics, we were talking about business. Um, this is when the Paris Agreement seemed like it was on the verge of being uh, determined, the, the rule book being decided. So, that came into the conversation. And I had been working with a group in Singapore called Climate Resource Exchange that does carbon uh, emissions reductions consulting, they do offset trading. So, I was a bit knowledgeable about that. And then at the same time in Japan, the SDGs became this very public uh, conversation. They were being used by the government uh, to promote businesses, to change their activities. So you could really see them everywhere. There'd be advertisements down in the subway. So that became part of the conversation that Trista and I were having. We're also both um, Americans who live outside of America, like yourself. Uh, So we observed the political environment there from a distance. But as expats, of course, we're still kind of very interested in it. So these different threads of politics, business, sustainability kind of came came together. And Trista has a a long experience in management consulting. Um, I've done much more work inside businesses and a bit in journalism. And she finally came to me after, I'd say, five months and said, Donald, I want to start an advisory firm helping businesses put sustainability at the core of their strategy. And I said, sign me up, <laughs> I was, uh, it was just perfect timing. And you know, we, we knew each other from these conversations. So we came up with the read the air, which was a name I had already kind of been thinking about because in Japan, there's a phrase which is kuki o yomu, which means you can kind of take the temperature of the room. You can read the air, literally. And I wanted to use it because I'd been thinking about carbon emissions and the atmosphere. So that's the air. And then being in Japan, while the sdgs were an active conversation sometimes things happen at a distance and we thought that there needed to be sort of an increase in ambition uh, especially around carbon emissions in particular at that time so i thought read the air was a sense know what's going on outside of japan and then we could be talking to businesses about these are what the international best practices are and and that's what we do with the read the air is we engage clients in uh, consulting around their strategy, and we find very often it really gets into questions about training their teams, simply because there's not enough knowledge around these these subjects of sustainability and the circular economy.
0: Right, and so you, I know you've done quite a lot of work in this in this area since that, and I, I love this meat cute story as you <laughs> as you called it. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and. I was thinking maybe there there might be some people who are a little bit unfamiliar with the SDGs who are listening to the podcast right now. So could you just give a, a brief overview about the Sustainable Development Goals, who they were created by and what, what they are?
1: Right. So the, the short answer is that they were created by the United Nations in 2015. 17 goals uh, that go in uh they're ranked by priority one through 17. the first being no poverty um the second being uh, good health for everyone going down through ones about life on land life underwater uh institutions uh, uh and the last one is the partnerships um so partnerships to accomplish the goals they have a target date which is 2030 and underneath the goals they have 169 different Uh, targets that match up with uh, each goal individually, and then there's 263 indicators to show progress on those goals. So they came about, I would say, because of almost a 50-year process, and it goes back to a United Nations uh, conference that was held in Sweden on humanity and the environment, and out of that conference, uh, there came this recognition that while a lot of the parties wanted to talk about a better environment for living in, it revealed a lot of um, tension around the global north and the global south, as we call it now, or developed and developing nations and questions of inequality uh, and a desire for there to be a a bit more fairness in the way that things were done. And that theme was picked up and kind of went through to the nineties where the idea of sustainability came into the conversation. And then when Kofi Annan came in in 1997, he came up with the idea of the Global Compact, and that was supposed to be the United Nations reaching back out to business, which it had kind of lost touch with, and trying to bring civil society and business together to address these hard problems or wicked problems, as people are calling them now. And he he commissioned a couple different reports um, that ended up creating, in partnership with OECD, uh, the Millennium Development Goals which, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think they were launched in 2000 with a set uh, target, like a goal date of 2015. They were pretty simple, there were seven of them there. Uh, The results about how well they were, how far they advanced things, uh, they're up for debate, but some some subjects were really good, like education, and some regions it it was better than others. And then that led into the SDGs as the next iteration, with much more complexity, much more ambition, but also this real desire to, to make massive change on a global scale.
0: Right. And the one that I think a lot of the listeners might be familiar with, with is uh, number 12, which is about sustainable production and consumption. Because I see a lot of people using that one when talking about circular economy.
1: Yes. And that one's actually very interesting as well, because there's a lot of academic work out there about how these SDGs interact with one another in terms of either uh, moving along progress on, if you move, you know, the uh, sustainable development, as, excuse me, uh, sustainable consumption and production ahead, what impact does that have on education or gender equality? And these things, they find connections between, they, you know, it's positive, it's neutral, it's negative. And under sustainable uh, consumption and production, there's a whole umbrella of other ones that, that actually have positive impacts. So I think it's very, it's a very interesting one and it's very relevant to circular economy.
0: Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're quite interlinked, as you say, with, you know, you move one and then you sort of move, move the other. So Trista and yourself recently released a book called Leading Sustainably, The Path to Sustainable Business and How the SDGs Changed Everything. And I'd love to dive in and talk about this book with you, Donald. Uh, what kind of led you to write it in the first place?
1: Well, once again, I have to give Trust to credit. It was her idea, or actually it was her husband's idea. About two weeks after we had this conversation about starting the advisory firm, she came back and she said, I was talking to, to my husband and he said, we should write a book to get out there. Uh, I said, sign me up. <laughs> this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while, but I just didn't know what. So it's great to have a partner sometimes to to move you along. And we just, uh, we had the thesis that the SDGs were pushing companies to become more serious about their sustainability programs, to move it from a a kind of CSR function that was sort of on the outside to something that was more in the middle of their strategy and operations. So we just started to kind of reach out to our network and try to find people we could speak to, to test the thesis and and just to get, uh, do some research. And we got lucky a bit in the beginning um first the people were just really responsive to the idea they wanted to talk about it they wanted an outlet to explain what their companies were doing and what they were thinking and what they were experiencing and then we got invitations to some really good events that made us connect with other people um in the summer of 2018 uh, i went to new york for the high level political forum at the un where they're holding a sdg in business uh forum it was the first one they had and there I, like in the elevator, I met uh, Jeff Turner from DSM. And I just asked him, are you with the UN? He said, no, I'm working with the company I'm presenting here. I thought, well, can I talk to you? And he said, sure, You know, meet me in the lobby in half an hour. And we did an interview. I met uh, Rebecca Self, who was working for HSBC at the time. And she had some really great things to say on stage. So I grabbed her and we went out for a coffee and it kind of built from there. You know, We, we had these great contacts, we had these great interviews. We decided, well, we need to speak to someone in that industry. We need to speak to someone on that continent because we really wanted to be, we wanted to be, to have a global perspective so that we weren't narrowly looking at Europe or America or Asia, or we weren't just looking at hard industries like cement and steel and power. We were also looking at fashion and hospitality and banking, and really capturing the whole picture. and as that went along, we figured out what the themes were and and what the status was, how far along people were, how far they had to go. And that kind of gave us the chapters. And then we just did the writing bit, which which takes time. <laughs> yes. And then the editing and the production bit, which also takes time, but which is, it's, it's a great experience to actually go through. Mm-hmm. I believe you recently so if I, finished a, oh, a thesis, right?
0: I did just recently finish a, a thesis. so it was a, it was a compilation of different papers that I had written over the past four years, but there was still, so in a way I lucked out with not having to write as much, but there was still the whole kind of summary and introduction of about a hundred pages uh, as well. So yeah, I can just You're familiar imagine, with the process. <laughs> I'm very familiar with the process and my, my father is also a writer. So I've seen him with this process my entire life, um, writing multiple books and things. So it, it's it's something that you can't rush.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's something we learned along the way.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so I, if I hear you correctly, there wasn't a particular SDG that you focused on, but rather you were investigating how the SDGs have shaped companies and, and led to more sustainable change.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, so we have a chapter that describes a lot of what I said at the beginning about, you know, how this came about. It gets much deeper into it. It also talks about the role of business in this conversation. Uh, we actually found someone named uh, Dillard Tinsley, who spoke at the Woodford Conference, I think in 1972 in Texas, which was this uh, this sort of very forward-thinking group that came uh, out of a oil uh, tycoon's just sort of desire to try to figure out how society and business could live better together. And he essentially was asking, so Tinsley was a marketing professor at a local university, and he wrote a chapter for a a conference report that he did about how businesses can exist in sustainable society. The whole theme was sustainable society. And uh, and he was asking the same questions about what it will take for businesses to move forward. So anyways, um, we cover a lot of the big picture about the SDGs. We don't actually get into them individually, because what we're doing more is we're looking from a business perspective: what are businesses experiencing, and what are the uh, the frameworks that are actually developed for them? Because the thing with the SDGs, when you come to business, is you have to remember that as they were originally formulated, they're for a national level view of mm-hmm. progress on these hard issues. They're not those indicators and those targets, they're not designed for businesses to see how they're performing. Um, if the businesses just have a different data set that they would use than, than national than national governments would. But uh, that said, there is one um, SDG in particular that does come out in the book as being incredibly important for success, and that, that is number 17, which is partnerships. And we actually have a whole other chapter about it takes an industry, essentially saying that, For there to be success, industries have to come together under their associations and agree to fair playing rules, you know, a fair playing ground. Also, there have to be partnerships uh, across different industries. Um, There have to be partnerships between businesses and NGOs um, and between businesses and government. So I think the partnership one is actually very interesting for this conversation.
0: Yeah, I would love if you could share some you've shared a lot of examples already from from the book, but I would love it if you could share some examples of maybe some of the companies that you that you mentioned in terms of how they are they've taken these SDGs, which you've said are national and sort of global indicators for sustainable development and how they have actually taken it and used them to shape their overarching strategy for sustainability
1: well, i yeah, there's kind of there's a there's a conversation. There's I'm saying conversation too much. <laughs> there's there's uh, two ways of thinking uh, when it comes to how businesses can use these. Uh, very simply, one is you choose the ones that are most appropriate to you, and then you just focus on those. I mean, the other one is that as a business, inevitably existing in society, you're going to come into contact to every one of them. So there's an organization called the Future Fit Foundation which is actually very helpful in helping a business to understand whether their their impact on the 17, every se- one of the 17 SDGs is po- positive, negative, or neutral. Their language is a little bit different. Um, and one group that uses them is Novo Norodisk, uh, which is a Danish company, so close to you. And they said, we want to keep track of our performance on all of these, but we're still gonna select a few that are the most important to us as a business. Um, I can't think particularly now what those were to them, but the, the example we talk about them in the book is around clean energy. So clean energy is one of the S- SDGs, access to clean energy. For them as a business, they wanted to be able to run all their factories on 100% renewable energy. At the time when they started to think that way, and this is maybe 10 years ago, in Denmark, they couldn't buy enough renewable energy. So they went to their partner, uh, which is now called Orsted, and they said to them, we need to change the way we're doing this. You can't supply us clean energy right now. What can we do? And then 17 comes into play. They formed a partnership and they actually started working together on this. And now Orsted is becoming a much cleaner business than it was. And I believe it's abandoning its coal power plants as much as as quickly as it can. And it's putting out the largest uh, windmill, uh, offshore windmills. so you know that's a that's a good example of focusing on a single goal, choosing an action, and then forming a partnership to to achieve it.
0: It's funny you should mention Oristed because at the end of last year, maybe it was even before that, but they had the name change, right? So they used to be called uh, Dong Energy,
1: right? Yes.
0: And then they now are Orsted, and uh, at the end of last year, I remember seeing. Uh, YouTube ads about demanding cl- demanding clean energy, but it was from uh, Oristed. So they were talking about how cons- customers and consumers in Denmark should be demanding uh, clean clean energy, and that sort of positioning them as the future, for providing this clean energy
1: right I mean this is one of the, the forces we think that there's about eight different forces that we've identified that actually move companies to make these kinds of changes and that's one is it's it's improved branding you know they're taking advantage of that one right there, so, right you know because they chose to make this change ten years ago they can now say hey look we're different than other utilities out there um, and when you get into that energy space I, I don't want to turn into an alphabet soup here, but are you familiar with the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosure?
0: No, I, okay. I have to admit that I am not.
1: <laughs> well, this one's very interesting. This is a, a, an investor-driven initiative where they're saying to the companies that they invest in that they want them to reveal or to, to show the impacts of climate change potentially in the future to their businesses so the investors can decide how to price that in as well as the transition risk. And the transri- mm-hmm. transition risk is, you know, there's uh, an anecdote in the, in the book about if you had invested in European utilities, I think it's 10 years ago, you know, a dollar, you'd have 20 cents today because they didn't recognize the transition risk that was going on, that all of these businesses were gonna be switching over to renewables. So if they stuck with their old plan, they're now going out of business. They're not gonna survive mm-hmm. that transition. So these are the more sort of business frameworks that start to come under this broader umbrella of the SDGs showing us a direction that we should be going.
0: Mm-hmm. I would love to go back to something that you brought up at the the beginning of, well, not, now I remember what, what question was it, but something you said earlier when you said about uh, there were are some companies that sort of just pick and choose the SDGs that make sense to them, because I know I'm guilty of, you know, having discussions with other researchers when we're writing proposals, for example, of, we always have to link it back to the sustainable development goals and you think, okay, what are, we, what, why are we doing this at this point? Because we're just, we feel like we're doing something just for the sake of going through an exercise, um, and of course, you know a lot of the work that I am doing is in line with these sustainable development goals. But it, do you think there's a, a downside to or a risk that you know we have with use, having companies use these sustainable development goals and picking and choosing?
1: Well, uh, I, I would say we avoid that issue by looking at those other frameworks that, that exist underneath that. Um, so there's the GRI which is, you know, it's the granddaddy of it. It's been it's been out there for a long time and it's kind of gives you the basics that you need to be paying attention to. And that, that could be, you know, your energy usage, your waste management, that could be, you know, your labor turnover, like there's seven points that are like, it just kind of like, are you fulfilling the basic standards that you need here? There's the GHG protocol, you know, for me- measuring uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but then you start to get into more sophisticated things like SASB. Uh, which is about materiality, which is about um, what are things that your business are doing that could have a, a negative material impact on the business from an investor's uh, standpoint. Again, uh, there's the Future Fit Foundation, which is a private, it's, it's an NPO, but they have a, you know, they can work with a, a company to help them decide this. So all of these, uh, Rebecca Self, who I mentioned before, what she said that really jumped out at me uh, at the at the SDG business forum, she's like, start now. Don't worry about what you start with. Figure something out that you think is suitable for you. Go with it. If it doesn't pan out, switch to something else. So, you know, what you're describing there maybe the SDG is not the right framework for what you're trying to do. Um, if it becomes frustrating because it is 169 targets, it's 263 uh, indicators, it's, in, it's incredibly complex. Um, so maybe that's not what you should be looking at. You should be trying, try, trying to find some other way to measure impact or to measure just you know what, what you're doing or what, what you think the outcomes would be of a project.
0: Yeah I think it's uh it's also how a lot of this is set up you know with a, European funding calls and things like that or even Swedish ones where they expect you to to always be able to relate it back. And so that's what I've been seeing a lot in this sort of in the f- field that I'm working in right now is a lot of times you feel like you're just checking boxes and that and I wonder if us as researchers are just doing this to be say so-called checking boxes then What about companies?
1: (laughs) Right, I think it's also though it can be an up, it's a process that you have to go through it sounds like. And in the process of checking those boxes, hopefully it'll make you think a little bit harder about how to characterize what you're doing. And then maybe it's actually gonna provide you with better insight. Um, And potentially help you see how these things again connect to each other, which is uh, I think very useful.
0: I do see one. I am, of course, I see benefits of this, so I'm not trying to disagree with you, but Mm. I I, I see also one real benefit that I see from it is actually having a conversation about the sort of overarching goal and why of this project. So it definitely leads to a lot of discussions about that. And you know, you have different partners, Mm. (laughs) the partners coming up, but you have different partners who who might have some assumptions of how they see this project uh, benefiting others in society, whereas you have other partners who have come in with a different assumption. So I I do think that that is, at least in what I've been doing, that that is a very useful way of of having a conversation and kind of triggering this discussion. And so I I can imagine that is also something similar happening in businesses as well.
1: Well, I can give you a a relevant example um, to this because we also say, that, you know, that's part of their strength is that they're, they're good for communicating uh, why you're thinking about sustainability. Uh, we spoke with Sergio Cato, who is the head of sustainability at Rico, which is an office supply company. Um, it's a very difficult industry to be in right now because the whole world of paper is changing. Um, so they're trying to f- find a way to differentiate themselves. And they recognized uh, through talking to the UN and the global impact, about sustainability, that there's this massive change coming and they need to, to, to be thinking about it so that they'd be, you know, still in existence 10, 15, 20 years from now. So kata he created this initiative because um, he came out of the sales uh, department or the sales uh, side of the business. He said, I want every single proposal that comes out of RICO by next week to have the SDGs on the front page of the proposal. And the first week he had like 3,000 and the second week he had like 10,000 proposals go out, and then 20,000. And we spoke to him a couple of months later and like 86,000 had gone out. He was ecstatic about it. And the interesting thing about it was that it forced two things to happen. Inside of RICO, everyone's like, SDGs, w- what, what are the SDGs? What, what, what is this? And so everyone had to get up to speed inside the company on what they were and figure out why suddenly from the top, they are being told to do this. But then also when they go out and they talk to clients, the clients are like, wait, 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 before we start talking about the product, what's this circle on the front of your proposal here? What does this mean? And then they get to explain it to them and they explain, oh, we're doing it because of this. And so they're spreading the message, but they're also, again, they're differentiating themselves because they're showing that this is something that they want to align themselves with. So the experience that you're having, maybe someone's trying to get the message to academics like, <laughs> we should all be thinking about this because the, the other, I, the other concept I like that comes out of the UN is this idea of, of uh, ramping up ambitions. And you see that in the Paris Agreement, you know, that every year you're supposed to make a bigger commitment. Um, the SDGs, I think, also have this element of, you're supposed to be getting closer to achieving the goals rather than falling behind. And I think, this idea of ramping up ambition is something that affects us all when we come into contact with the framework.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I think you summarize it perfectly with about communicating and also the spread of knowledge within organizations as well, because you need to have some sort of guiding principles to help you lead you to in a certain direction. Hmm. Um, I always use the example of, of, uh, Ray Anderson from, um, Interface, who talked about wanting ah, to make yeah. sure that uh, I had actually got the, uh, inter- the opportunity to introduce his grandson, uh, John Lanier on the podcast uh, ah. last year as well. That was a, a brilliant conversation. But uh, so Ray Anderson, uh, you know, talks about making sure that even just anyone who's working in the organization understands the goals that they have towards achieving a more sustainable uh, society. You know, so um, you talk to you know the forklift driver and they know about the core mission of the company and what sustainability means to them and what they're trying to do to achieve that. And I think that's a very powerful, very powerful message. So in some ways, yeah, the, I, I agree that these sustainable development goals can help companies to shape this narrative and reflect also on the, the broader perspective.
1: Yeah, I, I think for the, for the business world, when we talk about these things, communication is incredibly important. Um, and th- that's why, I, as I said, a lot of the time with clients, it comes back to this idea of training. It's like, how do you, how do you spread these ideas? What, what's the best way to do it? And as you said, with Interface, um, it's interesting because every organization is in, it's different. They have a different institutional history. They have different sort of different leadership. They have different products, different customers. So they each have to really find it for themselves.
0: Exactly. So I would love to hear a bit more about some of the interviews that you had and how you, what you found about how these companies are creating frameworks and implementing kind of and working on their SDGs. I don't know if that makes, if that, if that makes well, sense. Yeah.
1: Let me take a different angle actually. Um, yeah? Because there's a, uh, There's another category of company that we talk about in the book, which is mission-driven companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are ones that that Trista spent more time going out and finding and interviewing, but I can speak to them. They're businesses that were built from the ground up with the idea that they wanted to be sustainable or contributing to society or just a better business. Um, A lot of them right now are B Corps, which you may be familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. And that—that's another way that you can immediately sort of align yourself with the goals of the SDGs. You—you you make sure that from the beginning you're in a, in a proper position. But I—I I like them because I think a lot of them have kind of circular concepts in them. So if we come to a circular economy now. I could give you a list first. One of them is Keen, uh, which is the shoe company out of a out of the U.S. They make uh, sandals and they make boots. Um,
0: For some reason, I haven't heard of them before. You haven't. So,
1: so they came out of the sailing community. Uh, There was someone who was sailing and they're like, why are there no decent boat shoes? So he went out and they made the, uh, you know, made the shoe that he needed and it started to become Mm -hmm. popular. And then they were on the verge of doing a massive marketing campaign, their first million dollar marketing campaign when there was a tsunami, I wanna say in 1996 in in Indonesia, or maybe it's 1998 actually. And immediately overnight they said, you know what? we can't spend a million dollars in marketing when this is happening over here. And I think they contributed the most of that money to recovery efforts. And it kind of reset the founder's thinking. He's like, you know what? I, I want this to be a different kind of business. I want the kind of business where we're not spending our money on stuff like posters and TV ads, but something that's, you know, doing good work. And so now they have a combination of, Factories that they own in Asia themselves, and then factories they contract out. It's it's not 50/50, but it's around there. And they make sure that everything that they produce, they are either developing in-house the materials so that they know that they'll be able to recycle them, uh, upcycle them, reuse them in some way, or they have guarantees that if there's any problem. M- mostly, I think now they're known they're known for sandals and they're known for boots. If there's any problem, they'll take them back, they'll fix them and they'll send them back to you so that the life cycle is extended. When they do innovation and they're developing new products, they do it in-house right now. Uh, there's an example I think that we mentioned where uh, they have foot powder for smell. And most of the, <laughs> the foot powder that's available out there that if you buy a new pair of shoes already has it you know, sp- sprayed in, uh, it's chemical based. So they had a process of development so they could find a bio solution to that. And that they, uh, you know, it took them a little bit longer and they had to, you know, maybe deal with stinky shoes for a while. But in the long run, they came up with something that satisfied their requirements. That's one Mm -hmm. example. Another great one was Econcrete, like Mm eco-concrete. But Econcrete, it's a Israeli company and they, they just started thinking about how all these coastlines are being filled in with this very unattractive cement that's actually very negative for the sea life in the area, if not the if not the, the life on land, and they decided to try to find a solution that actually could encourage sea life to come back, for corals to grow back, for ecosystems to be built around all these reclaimed land that people are uh, pouring concrete on now. Um, especially because, not especially, but I, you know, part of the reason it, it really works is because a lot of the times when you're at the coast, you're trying to put in, people are putting in hotels. They're trying to attract people to come there. But if you get just giant cement pylons or banks, it kind of ruins the whole effect. So I think that's, that's a nice sort of solution that tries to re-encourage biodiversity to return to an area. Uh, there's another one, Renewable. Uh, Renewable is a company that use food waste to turn it into a fertilizer, uh, they're coming out mm-hmm. of New York. Um, uh, Limex. So Limex is an interesting. It's a it's a Japanese business that is part of a kind of a. I don't want to say VC. But it's like an investor group, and someone that found this technology in Taiwan for making paper out of limestone. Uh, and they, they thought it was interesting, but they, it wasn't quite uh, as good as they needed, so they, they redeveloped it on their own. And now they're producing paper for brochures, cards, cups, they've got plastic replacements. Now I think this is a very interesting circular economy uh, study because it's both, um, it, they need to figure out, I think, the final step of a, a biodegradable bond. So they have the limestone as the material, but they need a bond to replace it with. But then of course it becomes this bigger picture, which is the issue, as I understand it, often with circular economy solutions is, how do you collect it? Yes. Once it goes out there, I mean, we've got, you know, in Japanese households, a minimum of let's say five waste streams. Uh, My sister is kind of a professional of this. She visited my house. She's like, like, oh, you got 11 waste streams here that you're collecting for. So how do you add another one in because you can't just send it you don't want to send it to the incinerator you don't want to you can't send it you can't put it in with the plastic um, or any of the three different plastics you have so you have to create a, a broader system out there so that's what they're looking at now
0: yeah exactly i think a lot of it comes back to what you said in terms of the take back in the collection so it sounds like the shoe company has been doing you know offering these repairs and kind of extension of lifetimes by having returns and things which is an easy way but for the paper it's so tricky because you can't really control the the spread of the spread of it so it is it is a it is a very complex and to borrow the word that you said in the beginning a very wicked problem often to 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 try to design these systems in a way that is good for the environment and also economical for the company. It's, uh, I spent my PhD looking towards it and I don't have a simple answer either.
1: <laughs> right, you know, I, you mentioned impact when we were speaking earlier. And I, I think it's, it's interesting because we, we've, we've entered times where we have such a, a comprehensive vision of what's going on. It's not comprehensive enough. And we have so much data that we can get access to and there's even more out there. And we're building all these frameworks to start to, uh, to digest it and to understand it. But at the same time, sometimes it's nice just to, to say we need an ambition, right? We need a goal and we don't know if we can get there and we don't know what's gonna happen while we try to get there, but let's go that direction and, and see what happens. And maybe some of those frameworks turned out that like they were only limiting us to a view of the world that actually uh, made it impossible for us to take that next step. There's a certain leap of faith sometimes you have to make uh, because we don't exist in, in reality on data or frameworks, that there's yeah. something else going on.
0: And you can't plan for everything. I mean, just look at the whole COVID situation. If you had asked someone a year ago, uh, you know, back in when this airs, this will be October of probably of 2020, but when, you go back, if you were to ask someone in October 2019, like how do you see your business doing in April of 2020? I'm sure there were many people who said, oh, we're going to have doubled the sales from we, that we made from last year. We're gonna be doing this. We're gonna have these things. We're gonna have all of these events and then cut to April 2020 and <laughs> completely different.
1: But I mean, you know what's interesting about that though is that this was foreseeable, right?
0: Yes, you know, and like, that's also the the,
1: like we knew the other this. side of
0: it. We yes. knew, we
1: knew this was going to happen at some point. We didn't yes. we didn't account for the scale of it, or we couldn't imagine the scale of it. But we should have. <laughs> and and it's interesting because this is this is kind of not sustainability related, but um, I did a session. At, we we work with Temple University Japan Campus. Temple University from uh, Pennsylvania, uh, yeah, Philadelphia. We do a sustainability roundtable there. Uh, and the last one was supposed to be on, we, we hadn't decided this subject yet. We were, it was either going to be about industries or about next steps. What are the next steps business need to take? But of course, we changed it to COVID-19 and its impact on sustainability. And we asked Heather uh, Clancy from GreenBiz to come and sort of be our our panelist. And she said that she had worked in Silicon Valley for a long time. And there had been something that had happened, I think, around like a, a blackout. And so there are all these Silicon Valley companies that t- it's all digital, right? So they, they require electricity. They had to come up with um, contingency plans or business continuance plans. And they spent all this time for a couple of years working on this. And then probably everyone forgot about it. And then COVID came and they're like, hey, look, we, we can, we've got all these redundancy systems built into our business because we spent that time preparing for these things. So I think maybe what will happen right now with this situation is that businesses are going to take a good look at their sustainability issues, their supply chains, and they're gonna have this opportunity to reflect on what they were prepared for and what they weren't prepared for. And it gives them a little bit of runway for when we you know, start seeing more negative impacts of climate change.
0: Exactly. I mean, there's many comparisons that we could draw between this and looking back on it and being able to say we should have seen that coming and what we are, you know, in this sort of sustainability community and outside also the sustainability community, people saying, hey, maybe we should consider what's going to happen regarding climate <laughs> climate change. And to the. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm also fascinated. A lot of the work that I have done in the past, especially in my time uh, in Delft. Uh, and actually what led to the design of the in the loop game was about material criticality. So a lot of people assume that material criticality is where you don't have enough resources, but it's actually the fact that the material is basically you're unable to obtain the material for some reason, but theoretically there's enough of it in the earth's crust, but you just, there are, you know, uh, economic problems or uh, political concerns that hinder the ability for you to actually access this material. So I spent a lot of time working and looking into that. And I think it was maybe in October of last year, we had Adrian uh, Segans on the podcast and he was giving, I believe he gave an example then of there was a tsunami or, or natural disaster in some place Um, in the eastern uh, hemisphere and all of a sudden all of the computer companies didn't have like the the data processing systems that they needed to put into their computers and there was a back backlog of computer orders because every single processing unit was made in this one little tiny town or something i'm probably i've probably got some details of the story wrong so Mm. i'll make sure to put a link of this episode in the podcast notes so that people can get the correct story from from him himself um but it's that kind of thing where you don't realize that actually we have this supply chain issue. Uh, and we're so dependent on this material or this component from, you know, one supplier uh, until we have this issue. And again, I, I really like what you said about planning for that and having these contingency plans for it for that. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, it's over dependence on a single link. Um, I, I want to come back to sorry, really quickly to what I was saying before when I was starting to get a bit nebulous about about ambitions, because I think to temper that, we also have to always remember, and I think this comes back to circular economy, about unintended consequences, right? So that's something, yes. that's that's kind of a limiting factor that you know w- we should probably be better about, let's say this time around, opposed to you know the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or like the you know, second Industrial Revolution that maybe it started in the, in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. And that's where circular economy thinking clearly has a, a massive role to play. And 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 I will add that you know most of the businesses that we spoke to when we mentioned circular economy, they said, oh yeah, 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 that's in there too. We 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 have to we have to be thinking with that. We have to be using that. We have to get better at it.
0: Did you find any were there any examples of unintended consequences that kind of came out of your research for writing the book?
1: Like negative impacts?
0: Yeah, or po- I guess it could be also be positive, right? Because unintended consequences could have a positive impact. I guess.
1: Right. Uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I I can't, off the top of my mind, think of any. Um, because, and I say that because I think a lot of these businesses are trying to businesses are they're trying to be very intentional about what they do. So mm-hmm. what what we have are like her- heroic stories of of businesses going beyond like the call of duty to do things that you wouldn't typically imagine a business doing. And uh, one example is there's a, um, an energy focused uh, investment fund that uh, builds out massive renewable infrastructure in uh, Asia called Equus. Uh, they're not actually in the book, but uh, we spoke with them and they kind of really inspired us because if they're going to build a solar uh, facility in the middle of let's say Vietnam, um, They'll go in to the community three years in advance and start to build relationships with the community, you know, not with the business people and not with the government, but sitting down, having town halls with people talking to them, finding out what they need in that community, what they're missing. And then they'll help them to build a hospital or to build a school. They'll try to understand them as stakeholders in this community they'll make a commitment to them that if they build this, they'll actually hire people from that community opposed to just bringing people in until they're at the point where there's a level of communication between them that the, that the villagers say, okay, yeah, you know, if you wanna do it, please go ahead. But Equus makes sure that they take all those steps before they build something, just like this industrial giant coming in from the outside and, and saying, we need this land, let's go. So yeah. that's the kind of intentionality that, that we were inspired by.
0: Yeah. It, you mentioned earlier about the mission, the mission-driven companies and it got me started when and you mentioned, uh, let me, let me rephrase this actually. So maybe it has nothing to do with mission-driven companies. It's more about the unintended consequences. Um, but the one that I have been hearing a lot recently is about like disruptive technologies and disruptive companies that Everyone has a lot of, a lot of hype about uh, for for changing how we do things, like Airbnb, for example, or the uh, or Uber and, and Lyft, yeah. these types of companies. And then, you know, sharing economy—it's going to help us save resources. Uh, and then, then you hear anecdotal, anecdotal stories of the fact that actually traffic has increased in certain right. uh, cities because people. Uh, are now taking ubers instead of walking the two blocks that they they would have um or that people are buying up extra houses just so that they can put them on the market uh on airbnb and uh, kind of making the housing prices you know in amsterdam go even crazier than they were before right Uh, so yeah so it is quite interesting because in some ways they are helping to achieve goals with intensifying use and to maybe not have to own a car as more. But then you have this contrast with, uh, you know, every, every reaction has an equal and opposite reaction. Isn't yeah. That the, <laughs> I, you know, the I'm, not,
1: I'm, not, I'm not an expert in, in like the, the in Silicon Valley. But I mean, what you're describing was that sort of move fast and break things mentality. And I think what we're starting to see now, you know, with the problems that you describe, or political problems caused by social, you know, platforms—I won't name any names—and um, other businesses that did that move past and break things, is that they really broke some stuff. Um, and sometimes it it comes even to just like the nature of the company and and how the company pays its its employees and what that does to communities and the cost of living and then people get pushed out so there are a lot of things that happen there that i don't think would be able to happen again if businesses are taking a more intentional and sort of longer-term perspective on their effects Um, and you know part of that as well is uh, we're not, we shouldn't be talking about Silicon Valley so much, but the easy problems have been solved is the way I understand it. You know, the things that you could do with technology, they've done it. Now it's about doing these more difficult things. And then this is, actually, this is interesting because I think that around investing, you're going to start to see investors start to think more about the sustainability questions. You already are with mainstream investors, with ESG, Environment, Society and Governance, We talk about this in the book as well. And then if you kind of get really the leading edge of that, of the leading edge of sustainable finance, you have impact investing, where investors are saying, I I want both uh, a positive uh, financial return, but I also want a positive social return. And I believe that both are possible. And in some cases, maybe it's the only kinds of returns you should be looking for. So I think that VCs and potentially, you know, private equity as well, they're going to start to have to move this direction, or you know, they're gonna see that there's a good reason for them to move that direction. And we, we do believe there are business cases both for corporations and for investors to be adopting this.
0: Yeah, exactly. I had Andrea Brown on the podcast uh, from an impact investment uh, organization back in I think, July of 2019. Uh, so, and, and she was talking about linear risks and circular risks and and that companies are, as you said, you know, looking more in the future and and trying to plan for that. So it's not as much as the move fast and break things mentality, but really, how can we be more strategic and what kinds of risks are we facing if we if we don't start thinking about the future and plan for for the future? Yeah. So
1: there's yeah, a. I w- so okay, can I just say one one last thing? Because you mentioned impact investing as well. If you look into impact, um, actually it's the Impact Management Project, IMP, um, which set out in a consensus with I think almost 2000 different organizations to create a definition of impact. They have in their sort of guidance, uh, this one thing that really uh, stuck with me, which is that if you're looking to create a new business today, you should be looking to provide a service to an underserved community to find something that they don't have. And that's what you should build your business around. Don't just do something that everyone's doing because you're just gonna jump into the market and try to outperform them. You know, try to find things that actually have a group of people who need them and don't have them. Now, there's difficulties to doing that, of course. You know, market access might be more difficult. Services around those communities might be more difficult. But if you start to think about business that way, then you can really get off on the right foot um, in terms of sustainability and in terms of potentially finding great business opportunities.
0: Yeah, I I love this sort of this user driven and needs mentality, but going beyond just, you know, how can we do it better than the person next, but really what, what, what other challenges are out there and how can I address them if I'm hearing you correctly? Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your your time, Donald, and I would love to have the chance to ask you the final question that I ask all of the the guests that come on the Getting in the Loop podcast, which is about the In the Loop game, uh, the game that I created to help engage people in systems thinking and circular economy. And I ask the question, what event would you create? Because in the game, uh, there are... This, the objective of the game is to uh, (laughs) let me back up. (laughs) Um, So the, in, in the, in the loop game, you're a company that's producing products and you have to travel around the board to collect the materials to make your product. And there are often uh, different events that happen throughout the game that change the market conditions. So they're inspired by real world happenings. Like for example, you can't get the, comp- the parts for your, for your computer because of this uh, disaster in this one part of the world, uh, but they can also be positive events. Uh, and the guests often link these events to a vision that they have for the future. So my question to you, Donald would be if you could create an event for the in the loop game, what would you focus this event on?
1: I was thinking a policy-related event would be interesting and for two reasons. Um, one was we spoke with uh, a gentleman from the Dutch embassy in Tokyo for our circular economy session that we held, held at Temple University and he told us this example of Holland created a regulation, I actually think it was from the, their Supreme Court, that said we're capping the amount of nitrogen that can be used in the country of Holland. So the Netherlands, Netherlands can only use this much uh, nitrogen per year. now. Obviously, everyone thinks about the farmers because of fertilizer and they use a lot of nitrogen, but it turns out the construction industry has a close relationship to nitrogen, I believe because of emissions that are used in the production of buildings, transportation. So there became this conflict between these two industries within this one nation because they were only allowed jointly to have a certain amount of access to nitrogen. So I think that's a very interesting thing. What if the policy regime under which you exist creates a scarcity, uh, and then you have to figure out, I, I don't know if there's interactions with other players in your game, but you know, that, that would be an, an element to it, or it could just be individually, you feel the pressure, maybe it's cost, or maybe it's uh, access. And then you can flip that around as well, which is uh, Rankin Cells, which is uh, a Swedish company, I believe originally, another very interesting company. Uh, they're in waste management, And they recognized that they could start to extract phosphorus from their disposal of waste in Germany, from the businesses they were collecting from, and they want to take that phosphorus, which is just as important as nitrogen for agriculture, and start to put it to agricultural purposes, but the German policy wouldn't allow them. So in this case, business was ahead of, of the government in terms of saying, here's something we could do, but you need to fix this. So that could be another one that that uh, one of your players discovers something or wants to use something, but there's a policy that limits them from doing it. And how do they get around that?
0: That's brilliant. Yeah. And, and in both ways, there's innovation, but one of them, it's a push because of the, the policy and the other one, it's a pull because of the policy. And yeah, Regan is doing some great work. We had when I was uh, at Lund University doing my PhD, I was involved in the development of a circular economy MOOC, uh, that's online, called Sustainable Management of Materials. It's a circular economy, sustainable management of materials, and uh, they they came on for one of the lessons and gave uh, a, a bit of an update about the the work that they have been doing and the innovation that they've been doing.
1: Did Did Parlarshans speak?
0: No, it was a uh, Graham, and I'm going to forget his last name, but he's also a fellow American.
1: Oh, okay, all right, okay. yeah.
0: So I I interviewed
1: Par and uh, Lars Linden, uh, the CEO, and uh, yeah, they were great. So yeah, rank and sales, very interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I really like your event and I'm going to make sure that I can work it in. We actually are doing an expansion pack for it, for the in the loop game. Uh, And so I'm in the middle right now of creating the final new event cards. So I think this is a great input for, for that.
1: Thanks. Well, I'd love, love to get a copy of the game. I get a a, what do you call it, a version of the game <laughs> after, yeah. it's, uh, after yeah. it's updated.
0: Well, thank you so much, Donald, for for coming on the podcast. And before you go, where can listeners find out more about you and also the book?
1: So uh, they could go to our website, which is readtheair.com. Uh, there's also a link there to the book, uh, Leading Sustainably. Uh, Leading Sustainably is available from Rutledge, and you can get it at the Rutledge site, or you can also get it on Amazon. We are very active on LinkedIn as well, Um, and we'll probably have some other social channels uh, going, but probably the best place to find us is either our website or LinkedIn.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes and links, go to our website at gettinginthelooppodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our mailing list to have new episodes delivered to your inbox every Monday. See you next week.